It's August 18th, 2019, and this is episode 408 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session. So when it comes to Bitcoin, China has long been the elephant in the room. In the old days, miners and pools within China dominated the network hash power and was home to most of the global trading volume, at least as far as the official numbers went. Despite, or perhaps because of that burning interest, the Chinese government would then put in place some of the strictest controls, specifically on exchanges enabling the local yuan to flow into Bitcoin and beyond the nation's capital controls. All of this, of course, happened years ago. But even with these limitations, China is still a big, if not the biggest, player in cryptocurrency and an ongoing opportunity for Bitcoin. Recently, we've seen two signals out of China that maybe, slowly, things are changing. And I wanted to discuss both of the events and then kind of think out what an accommodative China would look like to Bitcoin's prospects. And I think that this topic is particularly well-suited given that on our last segment, we discussed the opposite situation that's happening in India, where they seem to be becoming more negative and more controlling and more, you know, as we said, the law that was written there effectively forbids Andreas from ever going back to even have private meetings because of the way that it's written. So again, with that in mind, talking about China, what we recently saw are two things. One is a court case that basically defined and set a precedence for Bitcoin as just straight up property you know, with the applicable property rights rather than capital, you know, restrictions as typically we see. And then we also saw the Central Bank of China roll out an infographic that kind of actually did an accurate job of explaining how Bitcoin works, what the value proposition is behind the scarcity, and why, you know, it's an investment that people are interested in, while also, you know, explaining how it's volatile and all those kind of other things. Um, You know, again, feeding off the conversation from last week, are these tea leaves that I'm trying to read here that don't mean anything? Or is this actually potentially a slow thawing of the relationship with China and Bitcoin? I love how we went from India to China to tea leaves. Um, very appropriate uh, transition. I think it is a slow steeping of China. <laughs> you know, it's strange because these things could go either way. And I think trying to predict what's going to happen next, like how many times has China banned Bitcoin so far? You know, 167, do we have like a counter somewhere? Well, there have been like three major banning incidents that I can remember. There have probably been a lot of smaller stuff too. Well, here's the simple rule of thumb, which is you cannot ban Bitcoin unless you first unban it. So in order to be able to ban Bitcoin in the future, China has to unban it now. (laughs) And then they can ban it again. Okay. So you think it's that perhaps? I don't know. I mean, I'm very confused about what's happening. I think there's a very big strategic conflict going on here. And the strategic conflict is that on the surface, it appears that digital currencies, cryptocurrencies in general, are antithetical to the authoritarian state control system of China's political system. But on the other hand, from a geopolitical and strategic perspective, cryptocurrency is one of the best weapons that China can use to undermine the global dollar system and find avenues to connect with trading partners like Russia, Europe, 
and others who are on the naughty list in kind of defiance of U.S. sanctions and U.S. financial cartels like SWIFT. And so from that perspective, China is split, right? There are some options where if it's used too much by people inside China, that could undermine state control. But if it's used by China at the state level, it could be a great geopolitical tool. And so I think that's one of the areas in which this flip-flops back and forth. Yeah, I think you pretty much immediately went to where I've been thinking about this as well, is that dichotomy between the fact that they really want control over their local currency, but also, on the other hand, they're under kind of the thumb of the global financial system. And it's a thumb that's difficult to get out from under, and which Bitcoin and technologies like it, yeah, present really a viable path forward to breaking those monopolies in a non-confrontational way. I think that's kind of the most interesting thing about it, is that we're not just talking about some sort of abstract situation. We're talking about the U.S. government, and we're talking about the U.S. dollar, and ultimately we're talking about the U.S. military, which is enormous, if not terribly efficient. You know, you look at how most of these changes of powers happen, and it's hard to see world systems changing without there being massive forms of disruption, because typically what happens is that one country is winning to the exclusion of another country losing, right? And Bitcoin kind of changes that math because it actually provides not just Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is kind of the most emblematic and most perfect example of it, uh, provides this very interesting, completely neutral platform that really does, for the first time and I think the history of global reserve currencies, represent a level playing field that doesn't give an inherent advantage to any one user of it. Even if that user is the largest user on the system, it still doesn't matter because it's not something that's in the control of anyone, which again gets us back to really the original value proposition of Bitcoin and a fundamental differentiation between it and projects like Libra. I really think that in many ways, Bitcoin, at least for now, is too English language centric and Western development centric to really be able to offer that relief valve. I think that in many ways we are going to see the emergence in the interim period, at least of things that are more, let's say, Sinocentric, more localized versions, just like we didn't see eBay, Craigslist, Yahoo, etc. in China. And then in the second wave, we didn't see Amazon, Google, etc. We have a 100 Chinese companies that most Westerners have never heard of that are behemoths the size of Amazon and Google or bigger that dominate that environment. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see something similar with Chinese origin stable coins that are attempting to do some kind of regional dominance play, where you see a lot of the surrounding satellite countries that neighbor and trade with China from Southeast Asia, you know, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, to India, Pakistan, to, you know, the Philippines and other nations in the region, all trading with Chinese-centric cryptocurrency. So it's going to be a very complicated game. You know, as we talked about the three-body problem, it's private currencies like when WeChat and Alipay are enormous in China, and they are doing pretty much what Libra says it will do already. They've already got a fully built payment system that is absolutely enormous, and not just in China. I remember half the shops in Zurich, my most recent visit, would take WePay and Alipay because they have a lot of Chinese tourists going there. 
they do have a lot of volume. We recently talked with Leo and Christina from Hong Kong actually about kind of exactly this. And their perspective was that the WeChat currency and the Alipay currency had gotten popular because they were so easy to use. And that what had actually happened is that as they'd become more popular, and especially recently, a couple of months ago, this happened, there have been pretty major crackdowns on who you can make payments to with those services. So just like a PayPal type situation, in the early days, it's really useful because it's useful. But eventually, some of the utility winds up dropping away because all of these restrictions get added on top of it. So it becomes basically like everything else. Yeah. And a rival to that will be open public digital currencies, but they're not necessarily going to be many of the same ones we see in Western countries. I think we're going to see much more local development. Now, eventually, these all may converge either in layers above or directly through economic attrition. But I think that market is so different and in many ways so separate from the Western development model that we will see local stuff happening there. Same as we will see in Russia and perhaps even India now. I mean, it seems inevitable that we're going to see local stuff happen everywhere. I think the question is, will they be separate systems? Are we talking about a system that doesn't interface with the system used by other parts of the world? You know, like a local cryptocurrency system that simply has no ability to interchange out. The moment you build a system like that, someone wants to build a system that interfaces. Because we're talking about money, the system that interfaces doesn't have to be directly connected. You can have various mechanisms from the most primitive over-the-counter mechanisms to peer-to-peer mechanisms that are similar to Hawala networks or cash transfer networks. You know, so essentially bilateral debt exchanges by individuals who trust each other that form a node between the two systems, all the way up to protocol integration at layer two with things like atomic swaps. But the markets will emerge naturally. If you have two systems, there will be trade between them because there needs to be trade between them. So just, again, projecting a little bit out, if we take the idea that we're going to see cryptocurrencies come out of China and they're going to be supported by the Chinese government or by regional governments, what have you. Let me go for another angle here. No matter where you draw the line in terms of open systems, closed systems, state-controlled, privately-controlled, corporal currencies or open public cryptocurrencies, The main theme here, or the main trend that started with Bitcoin, is the proliferation of alternatives. No matter what, we're now talking about a world in which thousands and thousands of systems emerge that compete. We're no longer restricted to 194 national currencies, and we're seeing this explosion of choices. And many of these choices are going to be more open, some are going to be more closed, some are going to be more stealthy, some are going to be more public. and Some are going to be more endorsed by the states and some are going to be more contrarian to the state. But the fundamental underlying theme here is that there's too many to keep track of. And not just too many for us to keep track of, but too many for regulators and enforcement agencies and anyone who wants to put a thumb on these systems, right? So we were talking before about China trying to squirm out of under the thumb of the US, but everybody's got a thumb on these systems, right? The problem is now underneath that thumb, you've got a swarm of cryptocurrencies, much like ants swarming, you know, to remind you of the cover of Mastering Bitcoin, but there's a reason I use that (laughs) image. And you know, if you try to eradicate the ants in your garden by going out and squishing them with your thumb, There's going to be a lot of squishing 
for a lot of nothing. At the end of the day, there'll be more. So if we see official cryptocurrencies getting released in this area, and they're going to interface with Bitcoin, you know, whether directly or indirectly, then maybe this strategy that we've seen so far from the Chinese government actually makes sense. They banned exchange to minimize capital flight while there is no equivalent alternative that they like locally, right? So the policies that they have around exchange make sense. They don't want anybody converting yuan into any of these other things or probably back the other way, but they're more concerned about capital flight. So if they're going to introduce their own versions of cryptocurrency, but not actually ban or try and make them not compatible with the existing cryptocurrencies that are out there, then we could effectively see in that circumstance really government-approved, if not government-issued, versions of cryptocurrency, which might be very attractive to a local population because they have the ability to spend outside. And so you don't need to have any other cryptocurrency, right? You don't need to have access to Bitcoin because you can just use the local Chinese version as the same thing. As Andreas was saying, from a cultural standpoint, it seems like that might make sense, especially if it's an equivalent uh, functionality. It doesn't do everything that the Chinese government perhaps would want. And again, the more they control it, the less of an open and useful currency it winds up being. But still, compared to the current status quo, where it's like offline yuan or you know cryptocurrency that they have no interest in, you know, and which effectively allows people to skirt capital controls. Like right now, it's a lose lose. But you introduce their own cryptocurrency, and suddenly they're actually participating in the ecosystem and can win from that interaction. Well, they would also have to ban Libra and Facebook coin. Well, that's what I'm saying is like the strategy that I'm laying out is that they ban things until they have a competitor and then they compete because the competition allows them not just to lose because right now it's just a lose-lose for them. But in that case, they can actually pull market share from other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think that's definitely the strategy we're going to see. And I think that's going to be a strategy that gets a lot of governments on board, which is now they have a path forward, which is issue a central bank digital currency or some semi-open weird cryptocurrency or some local corporate currency and channel the demand into those. And they're lesser replicas, but they're local. And that provides a good relief valve for the demand. It's a distraction game, right? It's bait and switch. Right. But in doing so, they actually do wind up introducing improved freedoms, if that's the right word. I don't know. Like, it's not something for nothing for people, though, right? It's actually an improvement over the status quo. Perhaps it's not to, you know, an ideal state, but it is an improvement over the illiquid, you know, local version of the currency that you can't legally use for this stuff. I don't think so. I actually think it's dangerous because inevitably this move to digital currencies goes one of two ways. You either move to a digital currency that is heavily controlled and surveilled, or you have an open private digital currency that is not heavily controlled and surveilled. But both of those paths are at the expense of cash and other anonymous instruments, meaning that all governments are moving to cashless societies. And if people follow along on the path that funnels them into these surveilled and controlled currencies, it's much worse than the current status quo. It's much less free than the status quo because the status quo still has this giant gray market of cash, which acts as a relief valve for state authoritarianism. If you remove that by funneling everybody into digital currencies that are surveilled and controlled, it's much worse. So from an international economic freedom standpoint, this is an improvement. 
But from the perspective of like anything that would happen domestically, you're basically saying that this takes something that there is no record of and is fully decentralized in that it's cash, you know, going from one hand to another and makes it so that there is that inherent record to tie back to. So this could actually be used, as you said, as a way to change the status quo for the negative, because even if it makes it easier for things to happen, it makes it easier for them to be tracked from a central system as well. Yeah. And, you know, the situation is also getting worse from a geopolitical perspective. I mean, China is asserting its regional dominance and in doing so, it's ruffling feathers all around the periphery. And one of the things we're seeing now is what's happening in Hong Kong, for example, right? The one country, two systems is coming under enormous pressure by the local population. And now they're lining up troops on the border. Same thing with Taiwan one country, two systems model, which is, you know, not two systems. How about 1.8 systems? How about 1.6 systems? How about one system? That whole separation is being eroded because China is exerting its control. Inevitably, that's going to cause pushback. And what you're going to see is that one of the ways the pushback is going to happen is through financial mechanisms like cryptocurrencies. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Paul from Edge for another quick sponsored minute. So Paul, I used to think of Edge as a wallet, but it seems like there's a lot more going on here. You're right, Adam. So Edge is a wallet built on the Edge SDK, which is an open source SDK for apps to be able to secure private keys for the user, much like they do in Edge with a simple username and password to encrypt backup keys. But it also lets the app transact on multiple different cryptocurrency blockchains, such as Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether, tokens, EOS, Stellar and whatnot. And it's actually being used by a handful of great partners, such as Augur, the decentralized prediction market on Ethereum, Endorse, the professional network, um, Ember Fund, which is an awesome decentralized hedge fund, and even the top four Bitcoin ATM operators in the US. To learn more, visit edge.app. Thanks, Paul. Uh, thanks a whole bunch, Adam. You know, on the geopolitical side, none of this is happening in a vacuum. And one of the things that happened kind of most recently is that the uh, U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, dropped the prime interest rate by 25 basis points. And it did that at a time when the economy, by the metrics by which the government measures the economy, if not in real life, is about as good as it has ever been. And all of the metrics that the Fed is supposed to respond to from its kind of data-driven model actually like aren't saying that it needed to do that. It's the first time that that happened in, I think it was 11 years since the 2007 crisis. Right. It's like, why do we need to juice an economy that's doing great is huge. It's better than ever. Greatest ever economy. And so why is the economy in a cocaine drip? And why did it flatline as soon as we reduce the dose? It's not even that we reduce the dose necessarily. Like what, Andreas, I think you're talking about is that the market basically has been going up on the expectation that they would change this long-term trend of raising rates, and instead they lowered rates. But the way that they lowered rates suggested that they think that it's not going to be a continued cycle of lowering rates. It's just one or two. And so that was enough that the market had a very negative reaction to it because it didn't meet expectations. But the point that you're making broadly about the state of the economy, I think that's the most interesting part to me. You know, we very rarely talk about politics. It's the most interesting part to me about Trump is that Trump is like the guy who gets into a situation and takes everything at face value and does everything as from the outside you would think 
that things need to be done on the inside. And so he looks at the stock market and he looks at the Federal Reserve and things like that. And he says, oh, well, this is how we measure productivity. Ergo, I'm just going to use the same tools as everybody else. But it feels like in the past, when we've had presidents who have done this, they've used the tools knowing fundamentally the lie behind them. And fundamentally, that these are tools that if pushed too far, will actually just prove that you're not leading the parade. You're actually just walking in front of the parade. And in fact, if you make a left turn and the parade's going to go straight, well, you have no control of the parade at all. And it sort of reveals that. I don't really think this has anything to do with Trump leading in any direction. This is a global phenomenon. Everybody claims to be a leader here, but the bottom line is that the world's economies have managed to get themselves in a bit of a sticky situation. And that means that they've managed to concentrate a lot of the risk factors and correlate a lot of the risk factors by implementing these highly stimulative policies over a period of more than 10 years. And it's not just the US. It's most central banks now are trapped in the zero interest range. They went down there. Some went negative. The conventional wisdom that you never go zero and you certainly don't go very low for very long because you will trap the economy and create malinvestment was ignored. They went zero and now they can't get out because every time they peek their head above the range between zero and 2%, the market throws a tantrum. And now they're at zero with not much increasing return in terms of productivity or growth. So every dollar that goes into stimulus doesn't produce any growth anymore. But if they take it away or if they stop stimulating the economy, it goes into a nosedive. So this isn't about the U.S. It's every single central bank in the developed world is currently trapped in this rate range. I'm going to push back to you on that just a little bit, because I think that while you're right that this is a global thing that's happening, the reality is, is it's the U.S. with the global reserve currency and the monetary policy that we've had here that's really driving all of that. As the U.S. does this, everyone else has to react. Prior presidents understood that we can't do some of the things, like even though technically we can have the types of devaluing policies that we're now apparently going to go down. On the other hand, If we devalue, then it makes it so that nobody devaluing matters anymore. So to a certain extent, although we're trapped at this part of the range, the U.S. getting into it means that we're going to see a new part of this that we've never really seen before, because the U.S. is taking steps and acting like every other central bank when they're not. I think for our listeners, a way to understand these interest rate fluctuations and the stimulus policy, I'll use a different analogy, which is... You drink a cup of coffee, you feel more energetic and awake. Great. So you decide you can get more work done and be more productive. You drink another cup of coffee, more energetic and awake. You do more. You're very productive. You drink another cup of coffee. Now it's time for your bedtime, but you're so productive that you just keep working. Next morning, you drink another cup of coffee. You haven't slept all night, and then you have another cup of coffee. At some point, the coffee isn't making you more awake. Now you're an exhausted, jittery zombie. And everyone's telling you, you need to sleep, dude. And you're like, no, no, just keep feeding me coffee. The reason I'm feeling crappy is because you cut me off my lovely coffee. I need more. Yeah, that's the stock market in a nutshell right now, certainly. And as a total aside, as someone who not that long ago did finals week, you never want to exceed 750 milligrams of caffeine in your blood levels at any one time. 
And coffee has a half-life of about four hours. So if you're maximizing for a week-long coffee binge, just realize you want to target under 700 milligrams at any one period. <laughs> Caffeine has a half-life of four hours for men, I might add. For women, it's actually longer. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Estrogen competes with caffeine metabolism. But that's neither here nor there. I love the analogy. So just like Fed rates, caffeine over stimulus is something that is overly complex. <laughs> yes. Yes. So basically, we are now living in the Red Bull economy. And the financial system is a jittery, twitchy mess that hasn't slept in 10 years and hasn't cleared out any of the cobwebs and is unable to function. And the solution, everybody seems to agree, is more coffee. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by Edge.app and featured content by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Stephen and featured music by Jared Rubens and General Funds. Any questions? Email adam at ltbshow.com. It's a new URL this time, adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.